Good morning, Dr. History. How are you? Good morning, Zeb. It's always good to be breathing, right? Uh, it's better than the alternative. It certainly is. How are you doing today? Uh, well, I'm a lot better, but I owe you an apology, and I want to make it public in front of everybody. I really am sorry about last week. Oh, that's all right. I just was glad I was listening uh, on the Internet and realized that when you introduced me and I wasn't there, that maybe I'd better make a quick phone call. It caused me great concern. <laughs> Well, all is well. We're good for today. All right. Now, you, of course, uh, we've got to mention the website, dr-history.com, because you were telling uh, last week, as a matter of fact, that our numbers are increasing, and literally we've got, what, 27 countries that have gone on the website and listened to the program. Over, over 9,300 hits, and about 25, 26 different countries, and surprisingly, a bunch of people in Japan and China, places that you would not think, you know, they would be listening, but we're slowly being found out, which is a good thing. All right, well, what are you gonna tell us today? Well, anytime I go on a trip, I like to kind of do a little uh, travel log of uh, where I've been and what I've done, and uh, I have a daughter in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and so we uh, drove up to Boise, and then we drove up through McCall, up through Lewiston to Coeur d'Alene, and then came back down through Montana. So as I drive, I, like, I always like to look at the historic sites and one thing or another, and so I'm just going to kind of give you a little travel log, but uh, probably the most of what I'm going to talk about is the Nez Perce Indians. Okay. So, uh, you know, as you get up to McCall, of course, the Indians were the first inhabitants uh, right in, the, in that area. And actually, there were three tribes. There was a tribe known as the Sheep Eaters, and they were kind of a sub-band or a sub-tribe of the Shoshone. Then there was the actual Shoshone tribe, and then the Nez Perce. And these Indians mainly inhabited the land in the summertime, and then they migrated uh, when the winters got bad. They would go south where it's a little warmer but in the early 19th century there was a nomadic french canadian fur trapper his name was francois payette and that's where we get the name payette mm -hmm. but he roamed the area alongside the other mountain men including jim bridger uh, peter skeen ogden jedediah smith he was one of those guys but during the 1860s miners temporarily named the settlement lake city there at mccall but the settlement of McCall was established by Thomas and Louisa McCall in about 1889, 90, 91, right in there. And anyway, Tom, his wife, four sons and a daughter lived in the cabin located on the shore of the lake near what we would now call present-day uh, Hotel McCall. But he established a school, a hotel, a saloon, a post office, and named himself Postmaster. So that's just a little brief story about uh, McCall. Now, as we head farther north, we get to a place called Whitebird, and this is where I'm going to start talking about the Nez Perce Indians. Okay. That's always been a fascinating story for me, and when I travel that area, I just can imagine seeing the Nez Perce Indians traveling through this area in peaceful times and in not-so-peaceful times. So there was a battle that occurred at Whitebird, and it's called the Whitebird Battle. But now, to go back a little farther, the origins of the war that caused Joseph, Chief Joseph, and the Nez Perce so, so much hardship and grief lay in the Wallowa uh, country of Northeast Oregon. Now, this is, of course, where for generations the Nez Perce, that was their homeland. But, and we've talked about this before, the arrival of the white settlers in the region led to violence, 
settlers were killed, but as many as 30 Nez Perce Indians were also killed. Mm -hmm. And uh, yet few of the people that were accused ever stood trial, and if they did, they were always let go. They were always acquitted. So anyway, about this time, there was a Captain David Perry who was commanding an office. Uh, he was a, an officer of the 1st Cavalry, and he was ordered to arrest some of these Indians that were making raids on the white settlers. And he was to escort the Nez Perce to Lapway. Well, Perry led 106 cavalrymen, uh, accompanied by 11 civilian volunteers, to the location of the Nez Perce camp uh, site at the head of uh, Whitebird Canyon. Well, as the cavalry marched down the canyon slopes, there were about 60 to 70 Nez Perce warriors that prepared to meet them. Now, as the Nez Perce positioned their warriors along the cavalry's expected route, they sent a small truce party to talk to the soldiers. Now, as the truce party approached, a shot rang out as one of the volunteers opened fire. Well, obviously, this ended any possibility of any kind of a truce. Well, within minutes of the opening shots, a Nez Perce marksman killed a trumpeter. Now, this was the main way of communicating between the officers and the men. So this made it difficult for Captain Perry to communicate orders to his unit. Well, while the cavalry formed a skirmish line making ready to advance, the Nez Perce responded by attacking the flanks of the extended line. Unfortunately, Perry had placed the volunteers on the left flank, and as volleys of rifle fire poured into their position, they panicked and broke, uh, running toward the line of cavalry at the top of this ridge. Now, as the volunteers scampered up the slope, uh, panic spread throughout the line, and as the flanks collapsed, Perry ordered a retreat. Uh, as soldiers panicked, a lot of them actually dropped their weapons and ran leaving behind about 34 dead soldiers on the battlefield. Well, when the soldiers reached the top of Whitebird Valley, they continued uh, their retreat as fast as they could go. Uh, they went actually to a little settlement called uh, Mount Idaho, and here they dug in and waited for help. Well, the Nez Perce retrieved the fallen weapons, picking up approximately 63 carbines, pistols, ammunition, and realizing the gravity of the situation, the Nez Perce quickly broke camp and crossed the Salmon River as General Howard gathered his forces for a pursuit that would continue for the next four months. So this is kind of the beginning of the Nez Perce uh, saga, if you want to call it. Now, uh, I'm going to uh, kind of skip here a little bit. I uh, We went on up to Coeur d'Alene, and I've got some information about Coeur d'Alene, but on our way back... Uh, down through Montana, we passed uh, an area called Big Hole, mm -hmm. and this is, and I'm sure you've heard of that, the Battle of the Big Hole. Yep. And so I'm going to skip right over to that, because that, uh, you know, as the Nez Perce Indians were harassed and driven and, and fled, they went across Idaho to the Lolo Pass and on over to this, this other battle. So I'm going to talk about that. Yeah, let me ask you a question right there, Doc. Um, okay. I'm trying to remember, it's been so long since I've been through that respective area, but isn't there a small town by the name of Victor right there? You know, I, I don't recall that, but there, there very well could be. Okay. I, I don't remember. All right, go ahead. Okay. Well, anyway, the Nez Perce leaders, uh, they'd led their people by this time over into Montana. You know, a pretty extensive trek over uh, uh, after several battles, and they were trying to escape the soldiers of this General Howard. Now, the Nez Perce crossed from Idaho into Montana across that Lolo Pass, and I don't know if any of the listeners have been through that area, but uh, I have. I've traveled uh, mm -hmm. up the uh, Locksaw River 
And those mountains uh, right in that area, that's a pretty rough area to, to travel. Yes, it is. Uh, uh, anyway, they, uh, the Nez Perce uh, entered the Bitterroot Valley over there in Montana, and then they proceeded southward. Now, uh, Chief Looking Glass seems to have kind of taken over leadership from Chief Joseph at this point. Now, Looking Glass pledged to the white settlers in the Bitterroot Valley that the Nez Perce would pass through their valley without violence. And they did so, even trading and purchasing supplies from some of the white merchants. Mm-hmm. So these were not violent Indians that were looking for a battle. They were, you know, they just wanted to have their land and live peacefully. Well, Looking Glass persuaded the Nez Perce that General Howard was far behind and that the citizens of, uh, citizens of Montana did not want war with them. So their progress was kind of leisurely. I mean, they actually kind of slowed down. They took very few precautions for defense. They didn't even send out scouts or uh, setting pickets to guard their encampments. Well, they left the Bitterroot Valley, crossed the mountain range, and camped in the Big Hole Basin. And pausing to replenish their teepee poles from the surrounding forest, uh, the Nez Perce at this point numbered about 750 people in all, uh, with about 200 warriors. Now, unknown to the Nez Perce, Colonel John Gibbon had left Fort Shaw with 161 officers and men and one howitzer. And they were following the trail of the Nez Perce, and along the way he collected about 45 civilian volunteers in the Bitterroot Valley. Now on August 8th, Gibbon located the Nez Perce encampment in the Big Hole. Well, that night Gibbon marched overland to the Nez Perce camp. He got there early in the morning. He left his 12-pound howitzer and a pack train to follow behind with a guard of about 20 men. Now his orders were no prisoners and no negotiations. That's what he had. That's what his orders from the upper guys were, from the his leaders. Right. And so he'd come to fight the Nez Perce. That was all there was to it. Well, between Gibbon's position and the Nez Perce encampment, which consisted of about 89 teepees in a V-shaped pattern, was the waist-deep and willow-lined North Fork of the Big Hole River. Now, approaching the Nez Perce encampment on foot at dawn, Gibbon's men encountered an old Nez Perce man, and they killed him. The soldiers crossed the river and rushed into the village and began firing into the teepees where most of the Nez Perce were still sleeping. Mm. As I mentioned, they weren't uh, prepared for anything. Mm-hmm. Well, the Indians were taken by surprise and they fled in all directions. And the sad part of this, Gibbons' men fired indiscriminately at men, women, children. Now, to their defense, I guess, if you want to call it that, they said some of the women were said to have been armed and shot back at the soldiers. Well. What else would you do? Absolutely. So, anyway, uh, at this point, there was a Lieutenant James Bradley. He was leading Gibbon's left wing. He was killed early in the battle. So, uh, leaderless, his men did not continue their advance, and they left the northern part of the village unoccupied, which actually gave a refuge and kind of a rallying point to the Nez Perce. So that's where they headed. Now, Gibbon, he halted his men in their pursuit, not wishing his force to be scattered and ordered them to burn the teepees. Well, that proved difficult to do, and the pause gave the Nez Perce time to regroup. And the voices of uh, Chief Whitebird and Looking Glass, they were rallying their men from the opposite end of the village, uh, uh, and from sheltered positions, the Nez Perce began to return fire. Now, Gibbon's horse was hit, and he was wounded in the leg, and several other soldiers were killed. 
And as usual, the Nez Perce marksmanship was really excellent. Uh, although, according to the warrior uh, Yellow Wolf, most of the Nez Perce warriors had fled without their weapons, and only a few of them were actually armed. Mm-hmm. Well, 20 minutes after his entry into the village, Gibbons, realizing that he was in a bad position, he actually ordered a retreat back across the river to kind of a timbered area about three or 400 yards uh, and out of view of the village. Well, the soldiers dug rifle pits and constructed rock and log barriers. And at this point, Gibbons brought his howitzer uh, up onto the battlefield and fired two or three rounds, but really didn't do anything. Well, the Nez Perce killed or rooted most of the howitzer crew, and, and they abandoned the gun, but uh, they dismantled it first. Well, at this point, Gibbons, fearing that the Nez Perce, who he believed outnumbered him, although they really probably did not, uh, he was afraid they would overrun his position. Mm-hmm. But instead, instead, the battle settled down in, into kind of a sniping duel between about 60 ne- Nespers under uh, uh, Chief Olicott and the soldiers. Well, the, ne- the Nespers had collected arms and ammunition that had been left behind by the soldiers in their retreat. And at one point, the Nespers set fires and attempted to burn the soldiers out of their position. But the wind shifted and the fire burned itself out. And that afternoon, the Nez Perce continued sniping at the soldiers while their women packed up, gathered the horse herd, and moved out south, going about 18 miles to a place called Lake Creek where they made camp. And this time, obviously, they were more attentive and they set up defensive uh, works and perimeters. Well, Gibbon had a serious uh, problem that night. Uh, His men had no food, uh, they had a dead horse, they had no water, and a, a lot of seriously wounded men to tend to. Well, a little water was obtained from the river by volunteers who crept through the Indian lines, and several of the civilian volunteers had had enough of the battle, and they just kind of quietly slipped away. Mm-hmm. Well, Gibbons sent out messengers, and uh, anyway, after everything was said and done, uh, you know, the battle was really costly for both sides. I mean, Gibbons' force was unfit to pursue the Nez Perce. Gibbons suffered 29 dead, 23 soldiers and 6 so- civilian volunteers, and 40 wounded, wow. and 36 soldiers and 4 civilians were wounded, but of uh, whom 2 later died. Now, his casualties amounted to more than 30% of his force. So, no precise estimate of the Nez Perce casualties exists, uh, although their total dead probably amounted to between 70 and 90, of whom less than 33 were warriors. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, they hit about 200 warriors, so they really didn't lose that many actual warriors, but Again, this uh, Indian named Yellow Wolf claimed that only 12 real fighters, uh, but he said our best, died in the battle. And among them were Chief Joseph and his brother Olicott's wives. Uh, oh. were, they weren't killed, but they were wounded. Well, at this point, uh, Gibbons sent out messengers to search uh, uh, for General Howard, who was following him, and request a relief. And the next day, August 10th, uh, about 20 or 30 Nez Perce sharpshooters kept the soldiers holed up in their fortifications all day, and the Nez Perce warriors left that night, leaving Gibbon and his soldiers alone, but pretty much immobile. And General Howard and an advanced party of 29 cavalrymen and 17 Bannock scouts found Gibbon the next morning after a, about a 71-mile ride in uh, through the night. But uh, again, the aftermath of this whole thing, um, uh, given success and surprise in the Nez Perce, uh, caused Looking Glass's prestige as a leader to kind of drop. 
uh, you know, he'd been, he hadn't been diligent in uh, watching what was going on. Mm-hmm. So Looking Glass kind of fell out of favor uh, with his, uh, his tribe. But he'd promised them that they would be safe in Montana, and instead nearly every Nez Perce family had suffered loss in the battle. Now, at this point, Chief Joseph seems to have kind of resumed his role as the principal leader of the Nez Perce. Well, let me ask you, whoa, whoa, stop for a minute, quick. Okay. Uh, why did he relinquish his power in the first place? I never did understand that. Well, um, the, from what I recall is that uh, Chief Joseph wanted peace, but he... Er, uh, there was a conflict between him and some of the others, and so he kind of relinquished his uh, uh, leadership. I, guess. I see. He just said, "Okay, if this is what you want, you guys go ahead. Okay, I'll just I'll just sit back." And I can't remember if he's the one that said, "No, let's fight," or if he's the one that said, "No, let's uh, let's not fight." No, I believe that Chief Joseph was the one that did not want to fight, and uh, uh, from all historical accounts that I've read. Uh, you know, he was a man of peace, and he was a very, very intelligent man. He was. Um, he, he was one of those guys that, uh, like Crazy Horse, and some of those that was a very, very uh, intelligent uh, military right. man. Right, right. So, but, you know, again, as I mentioned, Chief Joseph, he signed, uh, resumed his role as kind of the principal leader of the Nez Perce, and uh, although Looking Glass would continue to be, I guess, if you want to call it the battlefield leader, he was... Uh, the military leader, I guess, still. But now, for the Nez Perce, the loss in the battle was bad. I mean, it was it was pretty bad. They anticipated that by leaving Idaho, they might leave the war behind them and live peacefully. Now they knew that all the white men were their enemies, and they could expect no no help in, in future battles. And Howard's forces, of course, they knew were just arriving on the battlefield. They took up the pursuit and followed Joseph toward Yellowstone National Park and. Again, the Nez Perce would uh, clash uh, uh, on August 20th at another battle called the Battle of Camas Meadows. And, and of course, you know, I know we don't have time to continue on much farther, but, uh, of course, they headed towards Canada, hoping to seek refuge up there. Mm -hmm. And really were kind of gave up uh, not too far from the Canadian border. And that was kind of the end of the... uh, uh, the Nez Perce. You know, when you look at it, and I'm not going to point my finger and say this was wrong or you were wrong or this group was wrong or whatever, but I, you just really have to have a lot of sympathy and empathy. I know in every civil, civilization, there's always been a co, uh, kind of a conquering situation, you know, to where uh, highly civilized people came in and took over the not so highly civilized. But when you look at the Indians in the Northwest, especially like Chief Joseph and others, there could have been some negotiation and a much friendlier way to do that than what the army tried to. Imp- upon the Indians. Right. I mean, to, to have orders of, okay, you go in and wipe out yeah. these Nez Perce Indians when, again, they didn't, they didn't want to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you did a very, very good job on that story. And uh, once again, I want you to remind everybody about dr-history.com, how they can listen to it. dr-history.com on the Internet. We have... Probably about 30 stories on there at this point, so 
I'm sure people may have missed some of the live radio shows, so you can go back and pick up on those. And actually, last week, even though we were gone, uh, I had John uh, put on a story of Black Bart. Oh. So we haven't missed a week without a, a uh, story on the Internet. Well, with the team that we have, you and John Ellis and uh, my very minuscule part, it's an interesting little segment. Thank you so much. You bet, Zeb. You have a good day. And we'll look forward to next Tuesday. Sounds good. All right. Dr. History right here on Zeb at the Ranch. Thank you so much.